You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I want to tell you about a new sponsor here on the program. It's our first sponsor in a while, but in this time of economic uncertainty, this is a great, great business for all of you to partner with. It's Dashing Media Management. New ways of talking to customers are being created left and right, and you need an expert to help guide you through that process. That's where my friend Lex Kramer and Dashing Media Management come in. They're able to help you with social media, blog management, content marketing, graphics, and pretty much all of your marketing needs. They're a one-stop shop. They feature flat rate pricing, transparent reporting, and Lex is just a great person to work with, a good friend of mine, and I hope that you'll support her. So I hope you'll reach out to Lex today at their website, dashingmediamanagement.com. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Find more great shows like this at wearelibertarians.com. All right, let's get back to some boring subjects. Understand the risk to our country. Freedom brings people together. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to We Are Libertarians. My name is Chris Spangle. It's a great to see you today. We're going to be doing another path to libertarianism. My buddy Fritz from the Fritz cast. I love saying Fritz like that. So uh, we're going to hear his journey from whatever he was to whatever he is now. So uh, stay tuned right after this. Warning. This show is for adults. Produced by semi-adults. So the language is sometimes strong and offensive. Uh, I don't know what I said. Uh. Welcome to We Are Libertarians, where our goal is to help you sound smarter while talking to your friends. We examine current events from a libertarian perspective while treating modern politics with all of the irreverence it deserves. There has been lie after lie. We toss out the screaming heads, put people before political parties, and give context to the news to make you think. Now, here's our host, a 15-year veteran of politics and media, Chris Spangle. Welcome to the program. Again, my name is Chris Spangle. It is great to talk to you today, and even better to talk to my guest. I am talking to Fritz. Fritz has a podcast called FritzCast, and uh, I encourage everybody to go download it, find out, find it at your local podcatcher or at his website, gopod.me slash FritzCast, F-R-I-T-Z, cast. Uh, so what we're doing here today is a continuation in our series called The Path to Libertarianism. And this is a series that I want to do in 2020 as... We go through a presidential election. I know that a lot of new people are listening. A lot of new uh, viewers and listeners are downloading the podcast because they're going, hey, what is going on in our society today? They are starting their journey towards being a full-fledged, screeching libertarian. And uh, what I, what I want to do with these Path to Libertarianism interviews is a couple things. First, it is to... Uh, Fritz just dropped off. First, it is to explain the basics of, you know, just 
How does somebody become a libertarian? Why do they become a libertarian? And second is to just talk to some podcasters and uh, give you a wide variety of shows to listen to. So with that being said, Fritz, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me on, Chris. I really appreciate uh, your invite to, to come on. I've, I've been appreciating your series on this and uh, I'm ready to have some fun and do it. Yeah, tell us. Let's start with a little bit about your show. What do you do on your show? And uh, just tell us when did it get started and how did it get started? Uh, well, Fritzcast started back uh, right at the tail end of 2015 and the uh, the start of 2016. My uh, my wife actually bought me the, the microphone that I'm using right now. Um, it's a blue snowball microphone. And uh, it was because in the year prior to that, I'd always talked about like broadcasting. I'd always liked radio shows. I liked podcasts. Uh, I liked everything to do with those. I listened to a lot of them. Uh, and I, I had actually back in high school, I had worked on a couple of different websites, uh, with audio shows and all that. It was something fun that I liked to do. And, uh, so she got her phone. She said, Hey, here, here's your starting equipment, you know, dive on in, figure out what you got to do and, and start it. So, uh, right at that weekend I did, uh, I recorded my first episode, um, it was 2015. The election was uh, was coming into play, and uh, and from there, I, like when I started it off, I didn't initially know what my subject was going to be, what the purpose was going to be. Uh, I, I knew I wanted to talk about politics. I knew I wanted to talk about something more than just echoing what you hear over and over again on on the other radio shows or the other podcasts. And uh, I was turning libertarian i started a couple years prior to that and i figured it would be a good starting point especially with that election uh considering who our options were um with uh with hillary clinton and donald trump i was uh i was not happy with either of those choices i figured a lot of people were not happy with those choices and i built it from there and then as it went on uh you know i tried to evolve it from you know just being something contrarian to you know, let's have a discussion about this stuff. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, it's not a world of black and white. There's endless shades of gray. Let's let's focus on those and and really dive into those details because that isn't talked about enough. Absolutely. So let's let's go all the way back to fetus Fritz. Okay. Where, where did you start? Where what was your family like? Were they a political family? What where, what were their political leanings? Uh, honestly, I don't think my, like, I don't really recall my family being political so much. I mean, there, there definitely is, my family's pretty diverse. Um, I'm the youngest of eight children, um, which I mean, that, that's a lot of kids and they were all planned, by the way, (laughs) there, there's no accidents in there. My mom's just crazy. Oh, sorry, mom. You were homeschooled then. No, I actually, (laughs) I wasn't. I went to public school and all that, but, uh, (laughs) Mormon, but, um, Mormon, then no, Catholic. No, I'm just, actually, I'm just you know, it's funny you mention that. When I was born, I was born and baptized a Catholic, and then my family actually converted to Mormonism. But <laughs> I was the last one, so okay. you have to go off the Catholic doctrine for that. <laughs> That's hilarious. So it wasn't a political family, but uh, when did you develop this affinity for politics? It's very odd when I think about it because uh, I must have been like. I must have been right around 11 or 12 uh, because I have very vivid memories of the of the 2000 election 
in my head. And, and at that time I was, you know, I was like in sixth or seventh grade or whatever. And to, to me, at least anyway, at that time, I thought a lot of kids don't really actually care. Like kids my age, they don't care about politics. I felt like that weird nerdy kid that was somewhat interested for some reason. And I, I remember like being in class, our teachers would ask us, you know, what, what do you guys think? Do you think uh, you think you like George Bush or uh, or do you like Al Gore? And everybody was all Al Gore. You know, my mother was talking about politics at, at that time, and I knew she liked George W. Bush, uh, especially because she had memories of, of his father, George Herbert Walker Bush. So she was in the Bush camp. That made me go, you know, I wonder why everybody is on Al Gore's side. I'll, I'll check out this George Bush dude. And so I was that weird kid in school who I, everybody was all Al Gore. I was George Bush for whatever reason. And uh, I, I remember the election. I remember, you know, the, the controversy in Florida and the counting and the recounting and all that. And uh, But really, it peaked uh, in 2001 with 9-11. Uh, when 9-11 happened, I, I found myself sitting there questioning, you know, it was the big, the, the first big event that I remember in my life uh, on a national scale that was like a big deal, um, to, you know, to the degree that like, all of us kids were talking about it, you know, what was going on. And, and everybody's, you know, at that time, you know, how, how could there be so much hate in the world? Who would do this? It's a terrible thing that happened. You know, why did it happen? And, uh, you know, I remember I remember sitting in the classroom. Our teacher was giving us kind of like a day to reflect and talk about 9-11 and what was going on. And and one of one of my uh, one of my fellow students like stood up and was like, you know, we should just nuke them. We should just nuke the Middle East. Uh, They're the problems here. And if we just did that, it would be problem solved. And I I was always a shy kid. I never really like I, I never was outspoken. I never talked. Uh, I literally was the quiet, shy kid. And I remember standing up and going, you know, that's ridiculous. Like, there's innocent people there. You can't just say, you know, nuke the Middle East. And I remember uh, I remember a, a bunch of people, uh, a bunch of my fellow students were like, you know, you never talk. Why did we, what, what, what made you stand up and say that? And I, at that time, I was like, I don't know. It just, you know, it seemed like what he said was so wrong. And I just needed to stand up and say something. Like, that was my first big political moment growing up interesting yeah i think that 9-11 was really foundational for me too because i just turned 18 and it and it totally shaped my view on a lot of things and made me i think the main thing that it it it, a it made me a christian and then b it made me political and obviously those are the two two uh driving forces in my life now i think anybody who was who's 30 to 40 you know, you it, it's a, such a, a foundational moment where you, you I imagine there are a lot of kids going through that right now. Like I see it on our Instagram, which is a lot of Gen Z teens with the coronavirus pandemic and the government's response to it. You know, I can see the threads of what I went through when I was their age and 9-11 going happening to them where they're like they're active. They're questioning they're they're upset but they don't really know much <laughs> they're not yeah. really where to turn and and unfortunately there are a lot of people that are that are capturing them that are don't have their best interest at heart and want to manipulate them i mean so when when you have this 
earth-shattering kind of experience through this. Where did you start looking for information? How did you start learning? What are some of the things that you read or watched or listened to that kind of helped lay the foundations for what you're talking about now? You know, that's, that's a really interesting question to pose because thinking back at that time, you know, the internet was, it wasn't uh, such a mainstay as it is now. Like, you know, social media wasn't a big thing then it was just starting to develop. I think we um, had AIM and that might've been about it. Yeah. Like you, you could, I remember messaging with friends and all that. You could do that. Instant messaging was a big thing, but there was no such thing as, you know, I'm going to post this on Facebook or I'm going to go to Twitter or anything. Uh, for me at that time, it was, it was radio broadcasting. It was, uh, you know, uh, the, the first radio show I remember listening to, and it was shortly after nine 11 was, um, was Glenn Beck. And I remember for, for whatever reason, I got hooked on the Glenn Beck. Something just resonated with me listening to uh, him speak about what was going on uh, and, and how we should handle the situation and all that. And, and surpri- I had the same experience. Do you remember when he killed the dog? Yeah. Yeah. I, like I listened to that live when he killed the dog. Yeah, I was running the board. Was, um, I was running the board of WXNT and he did. He during the Terry Schiavo case, he he threatened he killed a puppy on air and it sounded kind of real and it basically outraged all the PETA people and then he he like a couple days later he built it up over days and said if you, you know how, why do you care more about a dog than Terry Schiavo and I was like damn I mean it was yeah. a seven day troll like I, I, I I've Beck started his radio show I think September 10th I think it was like his nationally syndicated show out of Tampa, he started like right on nine eleven or the day before, and so he. What is it about Beck that uh, because he takes a lot of crap from libertarians, but he's become much much more libertarian over the fifteen years I've listened to him. Like, what what do you think it was about his program that grabbed you early on? I just remember listening to it. it like at that time, he sounded like a, a sound mind. Uh, <laughs> And I mean, you're right. Over the years, he has, you know, he, he he's, he's a good libertarian target. But over the years, he has turned that dial more and more towards libertarianism, I believe. Anyway, he, including uh, in foreign policy. Yeah, he's 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 miles above uh, where he was 10, 15 years ago. He's, he's a completely different Glenn Beck today. Um, at, at that time, though. There was just something about the way that he talked and the way that he presented um, the information and the way that he ha- opened up the dialogue to, to discuss these things. And, I, and that's like he was he was the first one. And then I dabbled into listening to people like Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity. I kind of listened to some of the trifecta, you know, some of the great conservative talking names at that time. Uh, just. It, something resonated with me in, in their message, even though like I, I can look back at it now and I can go, well, that's kind of ridiculous. I can't believe I was ever on <laughs> like that side where I would listen to program after program after program uh, of the same stuff and multiple days out of the week. Uh, but something, uh, something with their presentation made me start thinking about politics, made me start thinking about how the government works, our standing in the world, and, uh, and it kind of evolved from there. Okay. So what are some other, other like, did you read any books or see any videos or, or what, so what are some other people that, like, 
as you started to become more political and you heard the word, I mean, where'd you hear the word libertarian for the first time? And then what are some ways that you investigated the philosophy to begin with? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. When I first heard the word libertarian, it was probably, you know, I want to, I look back to the the 2012 election. I I was not... um, a lot of people can point at Ron Paul and say, you know, that's when it hit me. That's when my turn was. I wasn't, uh, I, I wasn't immersed enough, really, to have that turning point at Ron Paul. Uh, I do remember Ron Paul. I remember him being on the debate stage uh, for the Republican debates uh, alongside Gary Johnson. I remember Gary Johnson being on the Republican debate stage at the time as well. And I remember... People were talking, you know, Internet's a bigger thing now. So I hear the word libertarian, you know, I I hear about the philosophy. It's there. The seeds are kind of, you know, in my head of the word, but I'm not sold on it. I'm, I'm, you know, the Republicans, they they put up Mitt Romney. I go, you know what? I I guess I got to be for Mitt Romney. And so all during the course of of that election, uh, I remember – sitting there going, thinking to myself, yeah, I'm going to vote for Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney's the guy, you know, this is a good choice. This is a good candidate, right? And then by the time I went in the voting booth and voted for Mitt Romney, like probably that night walking out, I sat there and I thought, you know what? I I backed this dude for, for this whole election cycle. I followed him. I thought he was the good, you know, the right guy. Uh, I, I was kind of disgusted with how a lot of media figures tried to vilify and demonize Mitt Romney. Uh, I thought it was ludicrous, but <clears throat> that sort of helped me realize how divisive and how like team politics this thing gets. Mm. But at, at the end of it, I was like, I, I, I went in there and I voted for a dude I didn't really even like or believe in. Like, so the day after that, I started looking into things like uh, Gary Johnson, I believe, was the libertarian candidate mm-hmm. then, wasn't he? Yeah, in 2012. I remember watching, I think it was Philip DeFranco. I think he had Gary Johnson on uh, like a live stream or something. Because um, I remember listening to him talking over the course of one of the debates. And I was like, this is interesting. Like, this dude, I don't know about third party or anything like that. I don't know if that can work out, but I at least listened to it. I at least consumed that media, kind of analyzed it and thought about it. And then I really was like, you know, I, I hated I, I hated the fact that I, I felt like I wasted time supporting Mitt Romney, more so trying to justify me backing Mitt Romney than, you know, go, then really having the conviction and just being like, yeah, he's the guy. Like, can't you right. see it? Like, so it, that it, it's it literally is voting for the lesser of two evils. And that that like that 
it just feels it always strikes me the people who make the argument of you, you know i had a friend say to me you've got to vote for joe biden you've got to you, you can't reelect trump and and i go well i know that donald trump's immoral in the way that you're saying but at the same time joe biden is a different level of immorality and he may be less crass but he's a continuation of the system like who would I vote for gun to my head? I don't, I don't know. But you know, if I were, if I were feeling like I needed to vote for one of the two major party can campaigns in 2020, like I wouldn't feel good about that. I, I, I wouldn't, I'd feel like I'd be talking myself into that, that I don't know. It's uh, the people who make the argument of you'd be wasting your vote. It's like, I will, pr- you know, I don't know who's go- going to be the nominee, but let's say it's Justin Amash or even Vermin Supreme. I will feel better about voting for Vermin Supreme than I will Donald Trump or Joe Biden. You know, yeah. because at least I know that guy, he's a performance artist to be sure, but he does he's he at least understands what I understand about the system and it it feels good to vote the way that I believe, right? Like I I don't get how the the idea of the wasted vote like it, it's like being gaslit, you know, it, it, and I hate when people, because domestic violence is like my, my tripwire. I just, I, it's, you know, we unfortunately lost a police officer here in Indianapolis recently. This, you know, she's a young mom who showed up to break up a domestic violence and got shot and killed. And, you know, it's that, that kind of tragedy. It's a tragedy for every woman in it. But, and I hate that people use that phrase of like, you, you're, you're in a, a, you know, an abusive relationship with the two parties um, because I think it demeans domestic violence. But there is, there is that mental manipulation in keeping people within the two party system that is very much like Stockholm syndrome. It is very much a gaslighting that you need to participate in this system uh, or else, you know, and. I just don't buy the or else. I, I look at, at what's going on, and you've got Republicans and you know and uh, Democrats talking about six months of two thousand dollars a month per taxpayer. You know, sixty thousand dollars. We're going to give every American sixty thousand dollars for it, it, it. That's being debated in Congress right now, as of April eighteenth, when this was recorded. And you just go, we. Have we not read anything in history? Once you, we've already put twelve trillion dollars worth of liquidity into the markets, and you can't take that out without deflation. Well, that's why the Great Depression lasted from twenty nine to forty. You know, it, it, it's deflation drops prices everywhere, and you know the inflation alone. Let's say there is never a deflationary cycle. The inflation of adding twelve trillion dollars, and then on top of that, another ten trillion by the time this is all said and done, the cost of living is so expensive that people can't survive. That's why everybody has a side hustle now because two incomes no longer, no longer the cost of living rose, but wages never rose. So uh, I just look at it and I go, I can't in good conscience vote for a continuation of the system in either one of these two. So, and I think a lot of people are getting there. A lot of people are there. It's why the majority of Americans don't even vote. Even if they can't articulate why, they know that this system no longer represents them and it's time to step outside of it. I mean, but I think there is that moment like you had and maybe speak to this where you have to take that leap. I think 
you know, in 2008, walking in the voting booth for the first time for me and pressing the L button for the first time, you know, I was a proud Republican who had never voted for any party other than Republicans and bragged about that up until 2007. And then now every election I voted for Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, Independents, you know, I, I'm much more spread out in my vote because I'm more open minded. But it's a scary thing to go in and push that button for the first time and walk away from a situation where you feel like you're risking something by not voting for one of the two major parties. Yeah, and I can I can agree with that, too. And I, I want to speak to the point that you said, you know, about kind of gaslighting, like, you know, you got to you got to pick Joe Biden or otherwise you're supporting Trump and you need to, you know, you need to be able to just bite your tongue and do it or hold your nose and do it. You know, to the people that argue that you're throwing away your vote, I had this like I had this brilliant uh, coming to moment when I voted uh, for Gary Johnson in 2016, and that is. You know, I had friends of mine say, like, you are selfish. You you th- you like you only thought of yourself when you voted for him and you contributed to Donald Trump's, you know, election by by voting for Gary Johnson. And I said, I live in Delaware. <laughs> Do you know where Delaware's electoral votes went? They went to Hillary Clinton. Delaware's electoral votes for the past like 30 years have historically gone to the Democrat. So already, when I go into a voting booth voting for president, I feel like my vote really doesn't count because the state's already solidified, like, safe blue. That's how I feel. So when I walk in there, I don't really have this notion of, hey, I'm throwing away my vote. My vote's getting counted. My vote's getting counted with millions of other people who voted libertarian for 2016. And it, it in no way... It in no way Uh-oh. helped out. Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I might have the COVID. I don't know. But um, it in no it, way it, helped. You yeah, saying. it in no way helped. It in no way helped Donald Trump. It in no way helped Hillary Clinton. Mostly because they don't own my vote anyway. Like, it's not – my vote isn't solidly in one corner. You have to earn my vote. And if you can't do it, which the Democrats and the Republicans definitely couldn't in 2016. That's on you. It's not on me. It's it, not on me to to justify if I'm going to vote for the lesser of two evils or decide which of the two is better. There was a third option who I thought was miles better, and I had no problem pulling the trigger on that. And the the reality is it's my First Amendment right to organize with others to exercise my free speech on the ballot. Like it, it's it really I I view a lot of it, the incumbent protection system laws like straight ticket voting or ballot access laws as a violation of the first amendment because if I if I have the ability to organize let's say 5000 people across the country or you know f- several hundred people in my state to declare myself a political party Okay, well, put a small threshold on there so it's not 17 people who are a caucus of one on the ballot. Okay, but in these states like Ohio, where it's 3% of the presidential election to get onto the ballot, that's just an impossible standard to meet, which is a violation of their right to organize. 
their right to free assembly, their right to free speech. And there, there really doesn't seem any rationale for it. And so I always like to say to people, like, are you for the First Amendment or not? Do you believe in free speech? Do you believe in freedom of assembly? Because that's what the ability to vote for another party is. It's the, it's the exercising of our, our, our rights, our natural rights to speak out and, and be libertarian on the ballot and not just be pushed into this two-party system. You know, the, the election laws in this country desperately need reformed in all 50 states to allow for more free speech. And it's, it's just criminal, in my mind, that you have a, a two-party system where you have Coke and Pepsi writing the antitrust laws to keep RC Cola and Fago <laughs> from, from being involved, you know, all the way to let's get rid of the League of Women Voters organizing the debates to now we're going to set up this phony, bony commission on presidential bipartisan debates. <laughs> yeah, it's a bipartisan commission where... You you've got to reach fifteen percent in polling, multiple polls, which are inherently biased in the first place. And I knew I knew polling was bullcrap when PPP, which is a left leaning polling firm, refused to add Gary Johnson to any of their polls. But then the next week ran a poll of who would win. I think it was uh, it was twenty twelve, so it was Mitt Romney, Barack Obama, or Honey Boo Boo. You know, but you're not you're not going to add Gary Johnson into the poll. Like here in Indiana, we have automatic ballot access because of the second. We have a low threshold, fortunately, here in Indiana. Uh, and to to this, you know, to any legislators listening, I'd say, listen, the Libertarian Party of Indiana here isn't a big threat. Uh, so give ballot access in all fifty states to the party. Uh, but the reality is they don't want to do accurate polling if i have three options on my ballot and you only poll for two you've you've skewed the you skewed your results to the point that your poll isn't believable so that that's a huge problem in polling leaving out the people if you're polling in a state and there there's three or four choices on the ballot and you poll for two you've you've got an inaccurate poll so uh just one thing to keep in mind as we're moving in but yeah i i look at it and i go it's it's not only a it's not only immoral for you to claim right to my vote. It's also unconstitutional, and I've I've had some success with Republicans in arguing that, uh, and even some liberals will still believe in free speech and and say that that may be a a good argument. So, but at the end of the day, why I think it's becoming increasingly a good argument to just look at your friends and go. Is this the best? Is this the best you can do? Why wouldn't you want more choices on the ballot? You know, if you vote for this person, they can win. You know, that's I think that's Vermin's line. You know, if you vote for me, I can win, which is an old libertarian line, but it's true. It's it's absolutely true. And then just moreover, you know, you can't make a good argument by saying. You know, you have a voice. You need to go out and vote. And then if you stand up and say, all right, well, I'm going to vote for Berman Supreme or I'm going to go vote for Jacob Hornberger. Or I'm going to go write in a name. You can't then all of a sudden backpedal and go, oh, no, wait, I like you can totally you should go out and vote. But you need to vote for option A or option B. You know, uh, like at, at that point, you're invalidating my belief. You're invalidating my vote. You're invalidating my voice. And you're doing it on purpose. You're trying to devalue what I 
want to cast as my vote, what I believe, what I want to put forward. Which is anti-democratic. Yeah, absolutely anti-democratic. And that's that's still why I can't like I, I get it. We have this big duopoly system. We have so much of it propping up. We have biases and polling and all that. And it's funny that you mentioned the polling thing too. Because I remember in 2016, one of the polling, one of the polls that I had participated in had Gary Johnson on it, but he was buried down like 15 questions deep into this thing before they even mentioned like, oh, if this guy's on the ballot, then would you rather vote for him over Hillary or him over Trump? You know, like it was so odd to see how it was lined up. And I, and that's kind of when I had the awakening of well, I'm not going to follow polling anymore because you can cherry pick that to the end of the to the end of the time for real. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I think we so I was on Instagram earlier looking at something and there was a libertarian meme page posting something about how much democracy sucks and, you know, quoting Mencken, despite not knowing that Mencken was uh, the only government he expressed admiration for was the Kaisers pre-World War One and an authoritarian Bismarckian government, which, you know, Mencken was a libertarian, but he was also uh, not a fan of democracy uh, because he thought that authoritarian government was the best on earth, um, which confusing nonetheless but my point being that libertarians are often don't help their cause because we we fall into populist uh streams and we are close to populist so we we sort of float close to that and what what that does is it robs the the individual and the voter of their agency it robs them of their power when you repeatedly say they're too powerful. You can't get rid of them. They're too powerful. You can't vote them out. This system doesn't work. In an effort to try and get somebody to believe in anarchy or your own populist president or whatever it may be, you you sort of neutralize your own argument with the the per, the the 80% of this country that you need to reach. And I think part of the wasted vote syndrome, the reason that we've we've got a two-party system is so many people don't believe that they're actually in charge because they don't realize the American system is set up where you and I are in charge. And most politicians, 99.9% of politicians are scared little girls or boys. Uh, you know, they're, they're scared pussies, basically. <laughs> and they'll do basically whatever the voters want. Public opinion controls politicians, which is why you don't want them to have too much power, because then it is mob rule. But if you repeatedly tell people that they have no power, then they don't believe it. Like, if you want the government open right now, if you believe that it's an acceptable risk to go out, let's restart the economy, let's do everything possible, be the first to open your business, be prepared to fight that lawsuit, persuade other people that you're right, because we have the power to open the economy. We have the power to vote in other parties. Um, but I think we, we've, we've lost sight as individualists of the power that individualists have. I mean... I think as a, a podcaster, as a person who speaks out loud, I struggle, and you tell me if you kind of struggle with this too, it's it's so easy to kind of push those populist notions or to try and uh, ingratiate yourself to an audience 
because they want it. They want to hear it. You know, the, the post about donating to a food bank do a fraction of the engagement that the, you know, anti-liberal post will, or, you know, where people want to be outraged. I mean, how do you kind of, when you're doing your show, balance that desire to please the crowd versus the desire to say what they need to hear? That's, <clears throat> that's like a million dollar question, man. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I ask a, it every day. Yeah. There's a fine line to be, to be walking there. I mean, the, the way that I've always seen it, the, the way that I analyze this stuff is that I, when it comes to politicians, I honestly, I don't want the politician up there. That's going to tell me what I want to hear. I want the politician that's going to tell me the truth, you know, that's going to give me what I need to know. And the facts, not not to sugarcoat it, not to make give me a false promise or anything. Um, actually, I pulled up a quote here, <clears throat> and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'll tell you the quote, and then I'll see if I'll see if you know it because some people do, some people don't. But your representative owes you not his industry only, but his judgment, and he betrays you instead of serving you if he sacrifices it to your opinion. Mm-hmm. You know that quote? I have never heard it. No. Okay, so <clears throat> that quote's from Edmund Burke. He was a Irish member of the British Parliament um, during the time of the American Revolution, and he was actually he was very apologetic towards you know America and and the revolution against England. And uh, you want to know where I heard that quote? Mm. I heard that quote in a musical called 1776. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of people, some people know that musical. Some people don't know that musical. If, if you know that musical, I don't need to explain it. If you're sitting here going, wait, there's a musical about 1776 and it's it, not Hamilton or something. It's great. I watch it every, every 4th of July. Yeah. I, I love it. And I think that as ridiculous as the notion of a musical about the signing of the declaration of independence is, I think that there's a lot of uh, profound things stuffed in there, uh, including that quote from Edmund Burke, uh, people think that a lot of people go into the voting booth thinking like this person is going to give me what I want. When I'm voting for somebody, I'm not necessarily going in there voting for somebody who's giving me an, an empty promise or, or, or even a promise that they intend to fulfill just to satisfy me. I'm voting for somebody who's going to, you know, be objective and looking at what's going on. Um, one of the reasons why I really love uh, Justin Amash, for example, is that I think he's like very much up there in his principles. Like he's he's not going to back Trump because it's the popular thing per se. He's going to look at it if he thinks that, for example, the whole impeachment process was something that was legitimate. He's going to stand up and say it, and he knows he's going to take a hit for it, but he's going to do it anyway. That's what I'm looking for in my politicians. Now, translating that to my show, you know, would I love to have a million people following me saying, you know, yes, this guy's awesome. He's saying exactly what we want to hear. He's, he's echoing the things that I believe. Sure. But at the same time, I want to be objective. I want to be promoting, you know, a legitimate idea and not a pipe dream. Um, one of the, one of the best quotes I think that I heard from Penn Gillette. Penn Gillette was a was another like key voice that helped me dive into libertarianism. Um, he he actually had a several interviews with Glenn Beck and and things like that uh, too, where 
there's always that talk of like, you know, hey, we this needs to eventually lead to anarchy. This needs to lead to having, you know, this this, you know, no form of government or whatever. And I'm like, we have to take baby steps. You know, it doesn't matter what kind of libertarian you are, if you're small L, big L, whatever. Getting to what you want the world to be is going to be done in baby steps. It's not going to be like, hey, we're going to vote vermin supreme in this year. We're going to finally get that libertarian president, and he's going to have the infinity gauntlet and snap away all the bad government. You know, it's not going to happen, but we can move the dial. It's slow. It sucks, but that's the only way to do it. We got to where we are today by that dial slowly moving to where it is now. So you slowly have to resist and walk it back to where we want it to be. Yeah, it's hard, and that's why people don't want to do it. They want an immediate solution to their problems, and and we are not immune to that. You've got the collapsitarian crowd who just is rooting for a total collapse of the economy right now because somehow, magically, the uh, Americans in the 370 million Americans who see Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden as the right choice are going to suddenly – vote in a libertarian government it's it's just nonsensical you know it's it's and i've taken my fair share of lumps on line the last couple months because it's easier to promote conspiracy theories and get people following you than it is to learn the truth or learn what scientists are saying and then repeat that and try to formulate a libertarian response to reality. You know, the reality is that coronavirus is very serious, and it is not the flu. It is not a car wreck. The The numbers are there if you look for the numbers, but it means trusting experts. And so many libertarians have been seduced by the Trump movement in that we should get rid of experts. Experts don't know anything. Only listen to me. I'm the only expert, as as if listening to Alex Jones, who is a self-admitted alcoholic and and, you know, just he seems personally very chaotic. And uh, I, I think he's his heart's in the right place. But this is not a person who is an epidemiologist that has studied for 40 years a craft like an expert, like an epidemiologist. You know, Ron Paul may be a doctor, but he hasn't practiced epidemiology his whole life, you know, it's, 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 but we trust them on so many other things. We're now in a space in society where we only trust the people who make us feel good and we don't trust anybody else. And part of that is the populist seduction of moving away from institutions and experts. And I argue that experts are a function of the free market. You know, I don't, I don't know what you do for a living, but I wake up every day excited about the work that I do. You know, there's a person who wakes up every day excited to grow the best turnips on the planet. There's a person that wakes up excited every day to learn exponential math so they can apply that to the health sciences and public health. Like there are, you know, experts are a function of the free market because in a plan system, everybody goes and does the job that they're assigned and they're not passionate about it. And so turning away from expertise seems nonsensical to me, but it is it's. It's a seduction. It's a seduction to say, you know, the numbers aren't correct because we just don't want the numbers to be correct. We don't want there to be a pandemic. So let's ignore the realities around us. And then from a 
position where you have an audience of tens of thousands of people, it's hard to go out and say that to those people when all the other libertarian hosts or conservative talk show hosts are push, pushing the same bad information. You know, it's very difficult to go out there and, and uh, you know, and I think that's kind of why Sarwark takes his lumps. He can be uh, a pain in the butt about it, but he's willing to go out and say what I think people need to hear or what he what he reads as opposed to what is kind of being pushed by what is popular. You know, this popular liber- the populist libertarian streak I don't think is necessarily healthy for uh, the movement, but it is certainly healthy for the bank, account- bank accounts of the people pushing it. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know if you want to wade in on that, but it's it to me is I think this has exposed the problem within our space of just demonizing expertise and promoting conspiracy theories as like a cheap way to build audience. I, I think it is a really cheap way, but before I dive into any of that, I'm loving the five G memes. By the way, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> loving. All of that nonsense. Yeah, like, I'm. I, listen, Bill Gates has his problems. 5G has its problems. I'm not an expert on any of those things, but, like, I just see people knee-jerk, this guy's for population control, when, and then you go and read it, and it's like, he's talking about birth control. Like, mm-hmm. it's, he wasn't talking about, like, top-down control. Well, he's, he's, he's just trying to gain power. It's like, the guy is giving away his fortune and can pick up the phone and talk to literally any person on the planet. Like how much more power and money does a human like that need? Like we don't engage, we don't like sit there and deduce like, okay, if Bill Gates is after power, what, what does that realistically mean? You know, it's like, we just go, that makes sense. I'm going to share this. And, and I don't think that that, I think that's sort of intellectually lazy. It is. And then you have things like Bill Gates talking about, well, people stretching from Bill Gates talking about digital certificates of people. Who Which have, he did you know, say. I mean, yeah, he, he, he said that. Right. And that's the problematic stuff. Like, but you don't need to, you can point out the problematic stuff without becoming, you can. It, becoming it doesn't hysterical. All have to be, it doesn't all have to be like this giant, like, first off, if it's a giant conspiracy, well done, because you are organized on a global scale to pull it off which I don't know any government that's efficient enough to do that. <laughs> right. But, but especially like that's where that's like one of the biggest arguments I have when it comes to these conspiracy theories. Like we, our big thing is about how the government's not efficient at doing anything, but apparently it is if it's a big, massive global control, you know, right. Like I just don't believe that. I don't believe that at all, but we have to look at things on a case by case basis there are valid criticisms to have throughout this. You know, it was like the other day, New York added some 4,000 COVID deaths and they didn't even test those people. Mm. They're just, they just said these people had the symptoms. So we're assuming, so we're adding it to the death toll. You can validly criticize that and say, that's not good for having known numbers, you know? Yeah. It, you don't, you're not don't, good to make that stretch. You don't need to take the next leap and say all the numbers are wrong. You know, no. like the, that's the thing that I'm I'm having a hard time with that, that that I've criticized. Like, not all these numbers. Like, they didn't just fudge 150,000 worldwide deaths. Like, you know, if anything, it's undercounted because China's not telling us the truth. You know, the the American deaths. It's pretty obvious if somebody dies with all the symptoms of COVID, but they have a negative test. That that's probably the case. But you know the pushing the idea that everybody that died in a car wreck over the last two months has been labeled COVID. 
There's no evidence for that. There's literally no evidence. So that's a hypothetical situation that has turned into fact because it was pushed by the Ron Paul Institute. And so, yeah, find the places, in my mind, like you just said, that 4,000 deaths where you can legitimately criticize. You know, the, there's tons and tons of evidence of petty tyranny where you can point out and go, why are the parks closed down? Because scientifically, there's no reason for parks to be shut down. You know, there's really no reason for the uneven enforcement of these laws. You know, and most people will go, you know, I never thought about the fact that the essential businesses all have good lobbyists. Maybe government fundamentally is the cause of corruption. You know, that's where you can win with people as opposed to all the deaths are faked. And if it weren't for the government, I'm going to do the wrong thing. So trust me. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, and on another note, you know, people do have valid criticisms for that. I have been one to say I've been one to look at these videos online. They started popping up like two weeks ago when, or two weeks ago, three weeks ago when the lockdowns were becoming a big, serious thing where people are yelling at a person for being out in a public spot. You know, that's not it's, their it's house ludicrous. Yeah, those people it's are like, ludicrous. Yeah. Yeah. Like, how can you like. If if somebody's out in a park, like a public park is open or whatever, I saw the the video of of the uh, the cops in the in the United Kingdom uh, in the public park telling everybody to disperse because the, there was guys sunbathing or whatever. But you look at the video, you look at the picture, and everybody's separated. Everybody's yeah. you know not on top of each other. Where's the problem? But then you can't you can't make that argument because everybody's like you know no we have to be locked down. You're being selfish. Yeah, but and that's just, and that's a stupid argument that can be refuted with science. And just go to the CDC website and look at that and go look at what the CDC is saying and then apply it to those people. And but you have to be willing to go to the CDC website in the first place. You know, if you if you read what experts are saying about how to prevent the spread of this disease, you can have a Sweden style opening. But you've got to be willing to actually read the information first. You know, the people, it, it, Tucker Carlson, and I posted the link to it at some point, the, this guy in Germany who is one of their leading epidemiologists said you can't catch it if you're in a store. It's very unlikely that if you're walking around a store that you're going to pick up COVID-19, you know, develop COVID-19. Um, that's an argument that we can use to, to show, like, you know, I went to Chick-fil-A yesterday, went through the drive-thru. They had somebody from IU Health, which is the biggest hospital here, come out at, to this Chick-fil-A and help design a system that will keep their employees safe. Like, it, it was a whole set of doors. And, like, well, the argument is, why can't other businesses do the same thing? You know, there are going to be some people who are not going to put forth that effort, and they're going to pay the costs, you know, and other people are going to pay the cost. But by and large, most people are going to do exactly what Chick-fil-A did and be responsible and protect their employees. Like the economy is not reopening until businesses feel comfortable reopening, you know, and that in and of itself, the idea that we're shut down totally is false. I'm working from home. I haven't stopped my job, you know, and I, I could be considered an essential employee, but I'm still working at home. So we we public conversations on social media descend into like this grunting of two sides at each other, as opposed to the very realistic argument that every business can, can and should be allowed to do exactly what Chick-fil-A did, which is what it, they think is in their best interest and protect themselves. Absolutely. And, and the other thing when it comes to discussing 
things like slowly reopening the economy, slowly trying to return things back to a, a, a it's a di- it's going to be a different level of normalcy. It's not like we're going to snap our fingers and it's going to be like February 1st all over again, you know, where right. everything's normal. But in having this discussion, like people, I don't think are looking at it uh, in the sense of a bigger picture. Like it's not ridiculous to say that New York City is going to be on a different timeline managing this than Nebraska is or <laughs> some other state. I mean, like it's just there's this is a very big, diverse nation. And yeah, but the person who lives in the Upper East Side in their apartment that has never visited the Middle States, they don't know that. No. You know, they and they don't want to know that. They want everybody to do what they want to do. And it's and it's why we have a federal system of 50 states, you know, Trump despite undermining his point 12 hours after the White House made it for him right. is right <laughs> in allowing the governors to open and do what's best in their state. Like the governor of South Dakota felt we're a, a sparse state. We don't need to shut down. And they're seeing spikes in cases, but at businesses that would have been open if she had ordered a stay at home, it, you know, the, the packing plant for the pork uh, producer Smithfield, they would have been essential in the working no matter what, but that business didn't do what was right and take care of their employees first. And they are paying the penalty and they're going to pay the penalty, you know? And so it is it's 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 sort of crazy so uh we're gonna start heading towards the end here but let's let's get back on track to your libertarian journey i mean when did you just become an openly flamboyant libertarian what 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 was the moment that you were just like you know i'm gonna start i'm gonna host a show i'm gonna do this i'm gonna be mr libertarian so I might have not been there right as I started the show, but it was it was walking towards that way anyway. Like I said, right after 2012, I said, I just wasted my vote on Mitt Romney. Um, that was dumb. Not going to do that again. Uh, watching the Republicans go from 2016 was what they had like 19 candidates starting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I kind of knew right at the start of that election cycle that I was going to be looking at third party. I knew I was already in that libertarian bent. I had started listening to shows like uh, Jason Stapleton, uh, part of the problem with Dave Smith. Uh, I started really leaning in to, to these and Glenn Beck, a- as we discussed, totally took a libertarian walk in 2016. People probably, People who don't follow him as much as I followed him probably didn't realize that he interviewed Austin Peterson and he interviewed uh, Daryl Castle from the Constitution Party. He was looking at other options because he was pretty well convinced he wasn't going to vote for Trump, he, as he really, was I. Yeah, he really liked AP. Yeah, he did. He did. He, I, and I remember watching his show and seeing AP. And then John Stossel came out and actually gave you know a big, professionally done you know libertarian presidential forum for McAfee and uh and and Peterson and Johnson you know which it was like it, I was for for me that was a big proud moment for me I was like here's the libertarians they have this nice professionally done you know thing they're in a studio they have they have the podiums they have actual logos on the podiums they don't just have this big rollout thing that they uncrumpled from a truck somewhere you know <laughs> um you know 2015, I was I was proudly 
you know, I'm a libertarian. I'm done with this two party system. This is this is the problem with American politics. It's because you know we're putting up Hillary Clinton because we all knew at that time we were like, yeah, the Bernie Sanders is making a splash, but he's not. They're not going to let him get the nomination. And then that didn't happen. And then I, this election cycle too, when when the Bernie fans were so out and about and like this time we're going to do it. I'm like, no, you're not going to do it this time, man. It's the same thing. It's the same setup. You you don't have have the momentum to do it, you know? So that's, I took the dive was heavily listening to, uh, like I said, the libertarian podcast and Gillette was, was another one that made me take that deep dive. Penn Gillette has a great series of interviews with, uh, um, on YouTube, uh, that was through Reason Magazine. Some of them with Glenn Beck. Um, some of them, some of them with, I believe it's Thick Big. Um, all he broke down libertarianism to me in a way that I didn't, you know, I didn't expect a talking head to break it down to me. Um, one of the best quotes from Penn Jillette was, you know, the question that we should be asking on every issue when it comes to the government looking at it is, you know, can this problem be resolved with more freedom? The answer is not always going to be yes. You know, the answer is not always going to be absolutely. We can, you know, we, we don't need government involvement in it or, or anything like that, but at least ask the question, can this be achieved or is this going to be better with more freedom? Oftentimes the answer is yes. Yeah. Well, very good. Um, so tell us a little bit more about your show. Like how is it just you talking, doing monologues? Are you interviewing people? What, what's your main goal in the show, you know, in, in terms of advancing liberty? So originally back in 2015, the show was was me. Think of it more like a, a, a vlog. Like I was just getting on, letting my thoughts out, trying to decipher what was going on in the world, whether it was current events, politics, whatever. Then it started bending towards, you know, let's, let me try to tap into people's minds and make them think, you know, why, why do I write off libertarianism? Why don't I give these guys a look more often? Then finally, uh, with the end of last year and the beginning of this year, I opened up interviews. I try to do about one interview a month, uh, because I think that's a good, I think that's a good steady goal for me. It's not overwhelming me or anything. And uh, the people I've interviewed, I've had the chance to interview Todd Hagopian, who's a, a great libertarian mind on Twitter. Uh, I've had the opportunity to inter- interview your very own Brian Nichols, who's Ooh, a good friend of mine. Uh, oh, I mean, uh, yeah, he's great. <laughs> Was that booze in the background? Uh, no, I don't know where that came from. Somebody's tapping in the, uh, yeah, somebody's tapping in the audio or the, something. The man. cat. I don't know. Um, I've gotten to interview Adam Kokesh, uh, Jacob Hornberger as well. And, and I've been able to, for them, it's not only giving them a platform because, you know, I think between 2016 and now it, it feels like libertarianism took a step down almost, um, in terms of having media access and all of that stuff. I wanted to be a platform where, you know, candidates like libertarian candidates can come on and really to just be able to, you know, express their views, lay out their platforms. You know, Adam Kokesh was uh, was a great interview for me to have because 
in my preconceived notions of Adam Kokesh, I was like, this guy's selling a, a libertarian pipe dream, <laughs> you know, like it's not going to work. He's, he, you know, it's crazy, but I was able to sit down and talk with him for, for nearly an hour about his platform, his ideas. And at the end of it, I had a whole different view of, of Adam Kokesh, you know, Jacob Hornberger, much the same. Uh, I, I was able to have him break down his platform, but also just have a discussion too. Like it, it, for me, it was very eye opening and, and great. And I feel like it's not just for me, you know, um, I'm not doing the show for me. I, I, you know, would it be great to have uh, a million followers and people retweeting my tweets like over and over and over again? Sure. But at the end of the day, it's not about me. It's about reaching out to other people, making them feel like they have a place to come and be part of the conversation. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be pure libertarianism either. I think one of the huge problems in the libertarian party is is being welcoming bringing people in, letting them know that like, you know, we're, we're open. We want you to come in. We want you to explore these ideas. We want you to debate. We want you to, we want you to be a part of it. And we're not going to automatically uh, give you the Puritan test and say, Oh, you're not good enough. Goodbye. And that, that's like the, the biggest problem with libertarianism. Like, like we're all gung ho about who's libertarian enough, who's not. And it's not, it's not a welcoming environment. I remember when I first stepped in, to libertarianism because I have a state job. Oh my God. Oh my God. He's, he's, he's a, uh, he's a hypocrite, right? Like I get paid with taxpayer money. I obviously. All right. Thank you, Fritz. That's great. Uh, it's so nice to talk to you today. Uh, so, uh, you know, maybe check out, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, so, but that, that, that's exactly how it felt coming into libertarianism. I like when I first dived in, I was like, I cannot let people know what I do for a living. I cannot let people know that this is like, like that. I have a job with the state. I can't let them know. Uh, well, they will kill me. And in reality, what you know to be true is what, what I know to be true based on just having been around state government in the media. The people who work in government by and large are genuinely great people who want to make a difference. They just don't realize that they're not making the difference that they could if they had a private sector job, you know? And so, and no offense to you, but I think you, you're obviously on board with organizing society around private means, which is much more effective than organizing it through the political economy. And there's no reason to demonize people for having views that are different than yours, because that's, you're probably going to end up quitting that job because it becomes a moral conundrum. And it's more likely that you, you lessen the effectiveness of the state by connecting with libertarians. You know, like I, I've never like in Keene, the free talk live guys are based in Keene. They have a hard time keeping police officers because the free talk live guys historically have always taken those guys out to lunch and like Socratically asked, why are you doing what you're doing? Have you ever thought about it this way? Look at it this perspective. And that friendly conversation erodes. They have a high turnover in that police department because of those guys. So it's much easier to get your point across if you're not calling somebody names. But I think a lot of times when you do libertarian media or you're starting out, you want to be the best libertarian and and try to get other libertarians to see what a great libertarian you are for your own social proof as opposed to realizing like 
that's a very if your goal is being the best libertarian versus being the most informative for the listener that that can be two very different things you know it's 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 hard to to learn to make that switch over time yeah and and what people also probably don't realize is that it, working where i've worked has played a big role in opening my eyes and realizing you know the government isn't the best at at doing everything and it really helped me walk away from being one of those people who could have probably easily slid into Bernie Bernie Sanders camp and saying like you know this is what the government was made for it was made for taking care of us guys I'd like that whole philosophy scares me to death because of where I've worked and how I've seen government and bureaucracies and everything get tied up. Like it, it was, it's been very eye opening to me. And, and eventually you are right. It probably will be come to a point where it's a conundrum and, and I find a, you know, a different path. All right. Well, Fritz look up the Fritz cast. That's all one word, right? Fritz cast one word, no okay. spaces, no nothing. And if people want to follow you on social media, how do they do that? Uh, Twitter at FritzQS, uh, Facebook.com slash the FritzCast. And uh, I don't have a website per se. I'm toying with the idea of, you know, maybe throwing up a website. But right now, social media and, and doing pages like that is uh, is doing me good enough. So, all right. Very good. Please go check out a show. And uh, seems like a great guy. I never talked to him except for this hour. Um, uh, I hope to speak to you again soon. Thanks so much for your time. Absolutely, man. Thank you for the opportunity. It was a uh, good, good experience. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We will see you again next week.